What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. This is episode 18. I'm Carlos Colazo, joined as always by Ben Badler. Ben, what's going on, man? I'm doing great, Carlos. Just been digging into a lot of lower, very lower level minor league prospects. So we're kicking up our, our league top prospects list and putting together the prospect handbook. So um doing a lot of that and, and getting ready to travel too. So it's uh busy, but busy but fun. Yeah, it, it seems like Ben has been on the phone basically the entire day. And here we are recording Monday night uh and about to record a podcast for all of you. So really kudos to you, Ben, for pushing through. Hopefully your voice holds up throughout this podcast. Uh, I feel like we got into a little bit of a groove of recording in the early afternoon, but our first few were, were at night, so we shouldn't have any issues with it. Um, but yeah, same with me. Got a uh, the Baseball Factory All-Star Game this weekend that I'm excited to get to, uh, and then Jupiter a few weeks after that. But outside of those two events and some updates to our current draft list, um, it's basically just a lot of focusing on minor leagues. I need to start diving into the Braves and the Twins handbook chapters at some point. Um, we've got really the, uh, the playoff races are starting to kind of culminate at the major league level. Minor league regular season has been wrapped today as we record this. I think what AAA has like a, a kind of a unique post uh, postseason tournament that they're doing. Is that what it is? Yeah, Triple A, Triple A still going on and everybody else is <laughs> so they're still down. playing regular season games. Yeah, like Triple A is still going to be playing. Some teams are starting up their instructional league. Now it's it you know it's weird this year because so, I mean some teams are doing instructional league. Some teams are not obviously like last year was instructional league was super important. Maybe the Cardinals and Yankees disagree because they didn't have one, but you know, you didn't have any minor league season. And if you didn't have your guys at the alternate training site, you're, you know, these guys are just working out on their own. So it was your only opportunity to bring, especially the lower level players and, you know, and your new draft picks in to sign this year, it's more of a normal season. There's not, it's not super important, I think, to have guys in and, be playing more games after you just played all all season long so sometimes we'll have you know check-in camps at different points throughout the year strength camp uh like velocity camp basically and <laughs> in some some teams have or, or different groups that they'll bring in over over the winter things like that and there'll be i think some teams are playing each other in games other teams are just saying either no games or or intra-squad games for covid reasons so it's yeah it's a weird you know triple a is going on but also we're playing instructional league so <laughs> kind of an unusual uh feel to it we'll just year. tack it on to everything else that's been unusual about this year in the past couple of years really um yeah but on top of that we've got mlb playoffs coming up um lots of other sports are kicking off on college campuses fall baseball practices arizona are fall league, yeah. arizona fall league so i feel like there's there's a lot going on. I feel like late September and October really is probably the best time of the year for just sports in general. I know normally we're focused exclusively on baseball, but it does seem like there's just a lot going on at this time of year. I always really like this time of year. I guess before we get into some of our other topics, do you have like a personal favorite time of year for sports or for baseball? I guess outside of this period for me, 
Um, I mean, playoff baseball is always so fun to watch. I really enjoy the first few weeks of the college season because that is like everyone is pining for baseball at that point. Everyone's getting ready for major league opening day, which typically happens about a month after the college season gets rolling. So the opening weekend of college baseball is really good. And then obviously I love the draft. So those two are kind of the highlights for me in addition to playoff baseball. Are there any periods or specific time pegs you have of the season that, that you really get excited about or the year? The, the only sport I, I just care about or follow anymore is, is baseball. I mean, growing up, I used to love basketball, football, NFL, college football, college basketball, NBA. But now it's just – there's just so much baseball yeah. just year, year round for me that I want to know more about, so many players I want to know about, so many games I want to watch. I'm just so all in on baseball. So, to me, the best is is just October. I mean, there's nothing better than – playoff baseball i can't wait to just when the playoffs start and i can just sit i mean i'll I'll actually probably be on the road then but (laughs) otherwise just be to to just sit in a room and just watch baseball from the time playoff baseball from the time it comes on at noon or one or whatever time it starts on the east coast and go until after midnight for games with the best teams in the game and just a great atmosphere and games that matter. That's that's to me is, is just the best. Do you, so you bring up a good point about travel. I feel like every year, I guess last year was an exception for me every year when like the exciting early round playoff baseball is happening. I feel like I'm in Jupiter and that's like a week long tournament. So I'm kind of aware of what's happening, but I'm never really watching the games early on. And then I have to catch up kind of in the second half of the postseason. Do you, um, I guess for your schedule, typically, is it you kind of in handbook mode so you can just have the games on while you're working on handbook chapters or or what is that like for you? Because yeah, I know JJ, if he was on, I'm sure he'd talk about how he has a million screens set up, but I always found it very difficult to focus while having a game on, especially if there's volume, but if the games are just on and I can kind of glance and see the score and then check in, maybe if there's an intense situation going on, that works for me, but it's, it's very tough for me, especially if I'm writing to have a lot of stuff going on at the same time. So what's your kind of work balance there? Yeah, I can't do, I can't do that three or four screen thing. My brain is just not wired that way. Even when like, you know, even at a tournament like Jupiter or some similar tournament where there's four games going on at once, I always, I just, all right, I got to pick one game, focus on this. Maybe if there's, you know, a game going on in adjacent field with some priority players, I'll keep an eye out for, all right, uh, all right, Max Clark is coming up. Or <laughs> uh, I see, I, I know where he is in the order. I know where to watch for him. I'll, I'll make sure I see him when his bets are are happening. But yeah, for me, it's just it's it's just a yeah gluttonous day of of baseball of of watching baseball, scheduling calls where I'll you know be on the phone with scouts or or, or folks in player development, whoever else, and and writing about it too for uh, yeah, like you said, usually for for the handbook at at that time of the year. Yeah, no doubt. So it's definitely a fun time of year. Uh, We can go ahead and dive into some of the topics we have to talk about. I wanted to bring up the Royals 2018 draft class really quickly, just because uh, a few days ago, Randy Gisarely tweeted that um, when John Heasley takes the mound tonight in his major league debut, this was September 17th. He tweeted this, the 2018 Royals draft will be the first in major league history to produce five pitchers, who all made a start for the team that drafted them in the same season. 
in addition to John Heasley, it was Brady Singer, Jackson Coar, Daniel Lynch, Chris Bubich, or Chris Bubik. Um, and I feel like we probably could just look back and, and, and talk about how impressive this class is, or at least how aggressive the Royals were in getting some of these college arms into the system um, and how that's panned out for them and what you think about those arms right now. But it is pretty impressive that all of those arms have gotten to the major league level. Each of those pitchers were their first five, I believe. Uh, no, excuse me. Jonathan Bolin was their fifth. Heasley was actually in after the 10th round pick. He was the 13th round selection. They signed him for 247,000. All the other guys um, were top four round picks, or excuse me, their top four picks. Um, they were all first round selections with Chris Bubich being in the supplemental first. So I guess that does make it a little, not less impressive, but when you do have the 18th pick of a draft, the 33rd pick of a draft, the 34th pick of the draft, and the 40th, you, you kind of have higher expectations for that draft class, but I do feel like it's pretty impressive to hit on that many, that many players, especially when you're talking with about the pitching demographic. Um, there are a number of things we could get into with this draft class um, between Singer and Coar being rotation mates at Florida, the fact that Singer was even available at 18, but just what are your thoughts on that kind of collection of talent as we sit here in 2020, 2021 with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah. I mean, I think, it, you know, if you're taking a college pitcher, I mean, a part, part of the reason they were able to do it is just because they took college pitchers with their top four picks. Right. So if you're taking a college pitcher in the top 40 picks in the draft, they should get to the big leagues. They don't always, that doesn't always happen. So, but that, I think that's part of a bit, a big part of, that stat is just that they used those. They, they had a lot of extra picks in the draft that year. Uh, they had, you know, 18, 33, 34, 40, uh, you know, 58 also in the, with their second round pick. And, and they used them all on, on college pitchers. So I think that skews it. I mean, John Heasley, obviously getting there as a, uh, a 13th round pick is, is, you know, a, a different story. Um, but, you know, that said, look, you know, all those guys that they took for the most part are look like pretty good arms. Um, so, yeah, it is it is it is impressive. The uh, collection of, of talent that they have that, um, you know, regardless of whether they got to the big leagues, just just how they project going forward, because a lot of times we do see teams that have a whole bunch of extra picks. And sometimes you think, wow, like this team is just going to absolutely crush the draft. They have so many extra picks but it doesn't typically end up working out <laughs> that way. Uh, but in this case, yeah, they, they got a lot of, a lot of big league arms out of that draft. And what's also kind of interesting about that draft specifically is I think at the time the Royals still had a, like a high school flavor to them. It seemed like they were one of the teams that were very aggressive in high school prospects. So at the time, I remember it, it almost seemed like a bit of a, even not a turning point for them philosophically, but at least interesting that they went so college heavy. I think their first, uh, all their picks in the top eight rounds were college. Then they took their first high school player, uh, outfitter Kevin Jackson in the ninth round, then back to more college after that. Um, 
So that was interesting at the time, but what are your thoughts? I think at the, at the time, Dayton Moore mentioned something about taking college players to kind of match with the wave of young high school bats that they had taken previously. Um, in the 2017 draft, they took Nick Prado in the first round and then MJ Melendez in the second. And I think there definitely was some internal thinking of pairing a wave of college players with a wave of younger high school players who have already been in your system. Do you think that's a smart strategy in general? Do you think teams maybe overestimate their ability to kind of match waves of players together? Uh, or, or do you think that's probably just a smart strategy to go with? Cause I've always found that interesting. Just the idea of, okay, last year we were really high school heavy these were maybe the demographics that we either took advantage of or have panned out for us. How can we use this next year's draft class to maybe pair more talent with them? So you can kind of create a wave of talent through your farm system. Do you think that matters at all? Or do you think that's trying to get too cute with things? I think it's probably pretty difficult to time that. And to, if, if you're going away from who the best player is or some combination of how to maximize your draft pool to get the, you know, best combination of players into your organization, then, then I think that would be a mistake. I, I don't know. That's necessarily what the Royals did in, in this case, but it just, as far as trying to time it, like you said, Oh, we're going to draft more college players. Cause we think this is where this is better for us, where we are in our, our, where, where our farm system is at right now and, and when they can matriculate up to the big leagues, I think, I think it just makes more sense to go for the best players and just try to inject the most amount of talent into the system as possible rather than worrying about trying to time it. I mean, you, you can, if you can time your major league window, if you want and, and make a bigger splash in, in free agency or, use your prospects in trades to acquire big leaguers who, who can help your team when you're ready to contend. But as far as drafting players, college versus high school, based on where, you know, the, where the most talent is in your farm system right now, I, that's not really something that ha make, has a whole lot of appeal to me. Yeah, definitely. Well, either way, whether, whether they did this intentionally or not, uh, they do rank near the top of our org talent rankings at this point. Their collection of college arms are at the top of that group with some new additions like Asa Lacey, um, MJ Melendez, and Nick Prado have both had really impressive bounce back, bounce back seasons this year after down 2019 seasons. And then obviously Bobby Witt Jr. has developed into one of the better prospects in baseball. So they are sitting in a pretty good spot with a good blend of hitters and pitchers. Um, and probably some some position players and pitchers further down in the rankings who um, probably deserve some attention. I know Matt Eddy is a big Vinny Pasquantino guy. Um, some other names in there that are interesting to me, like Peyton Wilson, Nick Lofton, some college middle infielders that are intriguing, um, and even, even lesser pitching prospects like Austin Cox, who I still really like. So they have an impressive collection of talent. Um, and, and I imagine they're only going to be more interesting at the major league level in the next few years. Um, I can't imagine that a guy like Bobby Wood Jr. won't be doing exciting things at the major league level very shortly. Let's go with uh, Salvador Perez, who 
Yeah. <laughs> going to hit like 50 home runs this year, man. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Very timely segue there. Didn't I think tonight as, as we record this, he hit the, his 46 home run of the season, which broke, um, whose record did he break? Johnny, Johnny Bench's, bench. Yeah. It's like the most home runs by a primary catcher since Johnny bench, which is insane. Like part of me is a little surprised that that record hasn't already been broken because I do feel like we've had a number of really impressive catcher catchers since then, obviously like it's a little surprising that a guy like Mike Piazza never broke that record. I need to actually look into it and see what the specifics are or when Johnny bench. What was the most that Mike Piazza hit in the season? Do you know off the top of your head? He might've had, did he ever have more than that? I wonder if it's just, I don't know. I, I didn't see the details of, of how they were categorizing like a primary catcher. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think Piazza topped out at 40 home yeah, runs. He had a couple 40 home run seasons in 1999. He hit 40 and in 1997, he hit 40. And though that was tied for his career high, a number of 30 plus home run seasons, but yeah, Johnny bench in 1970, 45 home runs led the league led the league in RBIs, led the league in sack flies that year. And now Salvador Perez, who honestly feels a little underrated at this point. You think so or no? Maybe I'm just not giving him the credit that he deserves. But Well, he just was like, you know, th- there was a, I mean, he didn't play in 2019. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he he's always been, I think, pretty highly regarded, obviously, for his his defense, but mm-hmm. he's always been a pretty low on base, yeah, guy. Um, but I mean, you don't typically think of a catcher getting into his thirties and then now he's going to get better. <laughs> no, you think he's going to get you know the wear and tear on his body, and that's when they start to break down, and he's mm-hmm. such a big dude. Like, how long is he going to last back there? And and he just keeps getting better into his early 30s which you just would not Mm -hmm. think that would happen but it's it's awesome to see him uh developing that way and and like you think back to to when he was i mean back when he was a prospect they had i mean they had him and they had will myers Mm -hmm. at catcher and it was like well obviously perez is a better defensive catcher but i think pretty widely held thought uh around baseball including that i had was that will myers was going to end up being the better player even if he moved off catcher just because mm-hmm. his bat was so much more advanced he he was a myers was a better hitter he had more power than than salvador perez he had a better approach and I mean, we're looking at it now, I mean, 10, 10 plus years later, mm-hmm. and I think it's pretty clear Salvador Perez is having the better career. Yeah, it is insane. It's your point about players getting better after their age 30 season, just into their thirties is just going off ops. Plus it's the best season he's had since his rookie year, which was a 39, 39 game season in 2011 where he had a 128 ops plus this year it's 126. And if you count the shortened 2020 season, that's easily the best year of his career, 160 ops plus, but again, just 37 games. So if you look at just full seasons, 
Um, this is his best offensive year pretty, pretty easily. If you're just looking at ops plus you're an ops plus guy. I think I, I like it. I like that. And WRC well, plus as just like, let's look. I mean, at the I mean more on a pronunciation level. Um, I would go OPS plus. I see. I've gone back and forth on this the other day. I asked there, uh, there was one stat. Yeah. I think it might've even been WRC plus. So I always say WRC plus, and I don't know if I used to say OPS plus or ops plus, but I asked how someone said WRC plus, and I heard that there are people that say work plus, and I had never heard. No, that. I was, I was about I to say, it. how else would you pronounce WRC plus? Yeah, no, I've heard, I've heard that some people with teams say work plus, and I hate work it. Work plus. So, so now I'm, I'm feeling really, uh, that is really that is weird about saying ops plus because as, as awkward as work plus sounds to me is probably how awkward ops plus was sounding to you. And I'm very self-conscious about having said that now ops ops at least is i can see like you're at least trying to a little pronounce, bit cooler you're trying to pronounce the acronym yeah <laughs> i can i can get that like i mean like you know i, I wouldn't you, you don't want to call it war csa war yeah, yeah all right you call it war yeah i think if it like phonetically if it makes sense to if it makes sense to say it as a word i probably tend to do that like uzr i would never say like I would never try to make that a word. I'm trying to think of some other common. I think I ones. used to call it oozer. Now I, I just don't use do it because there's, no there's no way. There's no way you said that. Oozer, yeah, like you like actually oozer. said that. <laughs> okay, so I don't see how you can make fun of me for saying ops plus if you said oozer. But man, I'm looking at so right now I'm looking at Salvador Perez's WAR from 2011 to 2021, just to see kind of where he ranks. Where would you guess? So this is, I'm just pulling up fan graphs from 2011 to 2021 qualified catchers sorted by fan graphs war. Where would you think he ranks? Probably right behind Buster Posey. I mean, it coincides right with, you know, basically his entire twenties. So yeah, he's 14th. Unless I'm doing something wrong. I was very surprised. And now I want to see where baseball reference has him. Because I know the way they calculate, especially catcher wins above replacement, is is pretty significant. But Salvador Perez is at fourteen point nine. They must really not like his. I mean, they like his defense. Okay, I don't understand this one at all. Doesn't that seem a bit wild to you? Yeah, that does seem a little light. I'm going to his player page now to see where. Yeah, Seriously. they've. Fangrass has never had Salvador Perez as being worth more than 3.5 wins above replacement in a single season, uh, which does seem a bit light. But like you said, he's always been a uh, lower OBP guy. Um, and if not, if for whatever reason their metrics don't like his defense, I guess that could explain it. But the gap seems a little bit insane. Um, so, so you say OBP, not not Abba. Yeah, yeah th there's no other way to say OBP. And for just for reference, I've pulled up the, the baseball reference page. Uh, B ref has Salvador worth 29.3 wins above replacement, um, which is basically double what Fangraphs has him as. So I do think this is one of the examples where you can't just kind of point to war, whichever war you choose, and kind of have it be the end all be all. There's a lot of nuance and, and different uh, arguments you can get from various advanced statistics and, and how you use them and how you unpack them. So Either way, a little surprised to see him that low.
any other stats you want to uh, throw out there, Ben, to see how we pronounce them, make sure we're on the same page? Or do you think our listeners are probably being driven crazy by us saying all these? I think this is also an interesting point to make because I never really think about how I say them because I just find myself, I mean, I write about all of these so much more often and you don't really have to think about how you say them. But this is a good lesson learned here. How do you pronounce the acronym for weighted on base average? Um, I probably say WOBA in my head. Woba. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I do don't say W-O-B-A at all. Or not Yeah, so Woba. I think it's just, for me, it's probably like, if it naturally seems like it could be a word, not a word, but like you could just say it out loud without making, like saying the acronym letter for letter, I'd probably default to that. Yeah, I think I, a good I, combination of of letters. I'm good to say it as a word. <laughs> I still I still can't get, I, I can't say ops plus. I got to well, go. All right, OPS. we'll have to take a poll, see what our listeners think, see who's yep. right, who's wrong. GIF or GIF, that kind of. Oh, are you a GIF guy or are you a GIF guy? I've all, I always called it GIF, and then okay, everybody see, says we, that's we wrong. We can't do this. We can't do Ex- this. Except I think the, the, the person the, who made GIFs says exactly. it's GIF. So I think there is something to you people who are on the wrong side of history now. You have a pretty good argument, but I think most people probably say GIF at this point. I just think GIF sounds weird. Just I, no, just the guy who coined the term says yeah. you're wrong. What does he all. know? What does he know? <laughs> I wanted to also bring up the uh, one of the. I feel like it's a bigger story that maybe has been a little bit overshadowed. Maybe not. Maybe I'm not doing credit to the amount of attention that's been given this. But um, Brittany Giroli with the Athletic had a story on the Phillies and Mets minor leaguers um, protesting pay and wearing fair ball hashtag fair ball wristbands this weekend. Uh, it was during Saturday's game. And basically the attempt was just to bring awareness to minor league pay. Um, there was a statement issued from players from both teams that said uh, minor league baseball players have been severely underpaid and silenced for decades. Today we're wearing hashtag fairball wristbands to show our solidarity with every fan and ally who is working to change that. We love we love the game of baseball, but it needs to evolve. It is time for every minor league minor leaguer to be paid a living wage. Um, I feel like this has kind of been building for a while now. I know JJ's written a, a bunch of stories about just the living conditions that minor league players have to go through, and it's it's an open secret that minor league players haven't been paid uh, probably what they're worth for a long time now. Um, it it seems like something's got to change in the future. Uh, I feel like there have been steps that have the teams have taken to make very incremental benefits to minor league players. But what is your general your general thought on this protest? Do you think anything's going to change in the near future? Um, and I guess what kind of system should major league teams want for their minor league players? I mean, all of these, I would imagine you want all of these guys to be in the best environments possible to develop. I've never really understood why these teams that are so profitable with uber wealthy owners have really cut corners with food for players, housing for players, pay for players. Um, but yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts on this, Ben? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear another team talk about their performance science department when you have your players sleeping three to a room on an air mattress in in an apartment that they can barely afford for for some of them it's 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 embarrassing it's you know what what teams have been paying minor league players for years for for their salaries has been 
atrocious. It, I, I think the only changes you're going to see are probably, uh, at least in the next few years, I would imagine would probably be smaller incremental things, something where MLB will go from, you know, the owners will go from paying their players in a ball, you know, eight grand a year to 10 grand a year or something like that. And then they will uh, talk about how they're giving everybody a 25% increase in pay or something like that. Yeah. And, and trumpet how great they are about that. Or you'll see some more teams possibly doing that on their own. I think they would get a lot of pushback from the commissioner's office uh, unless it was something extremely, you know, small in the grand scheme of things, but they were doing it to, uh, you know, oh, we, we increased this, these guys pay 50%. Well, uh, okay, well, if they go from making eight grand a year to 12 grand a year, it's like, I don't think you deserve a, a pat on the back for it. So again, this is just another example too of what we've talked about before where players who are not on the 40 man roster have pretty much no power in, in baseball. It's true for draft picks. It's true for international amateur players and it's true for minor league players who are not on the 40 man roster are not represented by the union. The union is not, is not looking out for players who are, are in the minor leagues who are not on 40 man rosters and team, the owners. Yeah. They're, you know, very, uh, you know, they, they own an asset in, in the club that is extremely valuable. Uh, and the reason they don't want to pay more money is to the players is yeah, it'll cost them, you know, maybe a few million, which, which seems like small change, but they don't want to spend the extra few million dollars that it would take, to, you know, just increase these guys pay to make sure everybody's making, you know, what, 25, 30 grand a year, something mm-hmm. that's not, <laughs> I mean, still on the lower end of pay yeah. for, for somebody who you're, you know, expecting to really do year round work. Yeah. That's the thing you. is they're only paid for the, for in season months, which is basically like five months out of the year. And then they're expected to handle their training and development over the off season, but uh, for most minor leaguers, you have to get a job in the off season to make rent, save up money. I mean, no one is making, I shouldn't say no one, but most minor league players are not making money during the season. They're barely making enough to meet ends meet as they are rooming with four five, six other people in season. Um, I think it was good piece of context that Brittany had in her story. If you look at the NBA G league, and the AHL, which is the de- developmental league for, for the NHL, players in the G League have a minimum salary of $35,000 and housing is covered. And in the AHL, um, for this season, the minimum was $51,000, um, which is far and away better than what minor league players get. Um, and I think it's, it's notable that NBA G League players created a union last year. I would imagine, I don't know what the the history of NBA G league player salary is how much higher that $35,000 mark was prior to the union. Um, but again, the, the AHL players are part of a union as well. And I imagine unionizing for the minor league players, whether that's a separate union from the MLBPA or the MLBPA starting to rep these players, I guess if it's, if it's, if they're repping minor league players, you'd have to change the name at that point. But 
it does seem like if you have a union, you're going to uh, have a much easier time getting paid what you deserve to be paid, or at least paid what you cannot stress about what you're going to do next week for rent or yeah, what you're and this do is this is not doesn't have any like look nobody's crying for like adley rushman or bobby witt jr for sure or top you know first round pick signed for millions of dollars and those are the guys who most people know about and, and you hear their names on on day one of the draft but the reality is oh, man i forget the ex- i don't i don't quote the exact percentage it's i think it was at least 20 it's at one point it's at least 25 percent of players i think both in the draft internationally who were getting like 10 grand or below and, and a significant number of, even more than that were signing for fifty thousand dollars or below and all right well that that sounds all right like ten thousand dollars to start is is good money i guess mm-hmm. but like not if you're gonna go out and your first you're gonna spend your first three years playing rookie ball Mm-hmm. making like three thousand dollars for for the entire year maybe even less if you're in the certainly less if you're in the dominican summer league so you're gonna you're gonna stretch ten a ten thousand dollar signing bonus over what five years i mean the, the, the numbers just don't yeah, add luck. up how, how are you gonna make that work i mean hopefully and jelly sandwiches and ramen there's a lot yeah, in the future <laughs> it's 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 absurd to to not pay these guys you know a you know basic wage that doesn't have them living under the poverty level when you're trying to develop these players into big leaguers and and those ten thousand dollar guys that you're signing from Latin America or those thousand dollar two thousand dollar whatever it is senior signs turn into legitimate prospects. For you, especially out of Latin America, when you're signing guys for, you know, at 16, 17 years old, and, and a lot of pitching that you can get, who are good, who end up being good prospects pretty quickly sometimes for, for ten grand or seventy grand, um, to to not give these guys uh, a real salary is is just embarrassing for these yeah. clubs. And just think about all the players that had to step away from minor league baseball for strictly financial reasons that could have easily developed into solid or better major league players, but they, they couldn't afford to keep doing it. They had obligations outside of the sport they needed to handle. Um, and so they didn't have a leash long enough to really see what they could turn into as a prospect or as a complimentary player, whatever the reason, but I'm sure there are hundreds and hundreds of players that have had to step away from the game Uh, because they're not supported enough financially to make it work if you've got a family and they're relying on you to uh to bring money home i don't understand how that works i mean it doesn't in many cases so yeah Yeah, hopefully I, i can't imagine who would who would not be on the player's side here unless maybe you work in the commissioner's office or yeah. or you are one of the people who owns one of these 30 teams and you're listening yeah yeah, I don't think anyone's going to be uh, arguing with us too much on that for, for the vast majority of listeners here. Um, but yeah, hopefully something will change in the future. Again, this offseason, I'm sure there are going to be a ton of changes with the CBA and negotiations between the union and between the league. I'm not optimistic because I feel like there's really no reason for me to be optimistic at this point. But hopefully with, with more protests and more, I mean, more action from the players themselves, kind of drawing attention to this, something will change for, for the better in the future. Um, 
But maybe in a less uh, depressing bit of news from The Athletic, Jason Stark had a piece, uh, I believe it was this weekend as well, um, kind of talking about the minor league pitch clock and wondering if that can um, take the game time down, help our pace of play for baseball at the major league level. He just cited low A West using a pitch clock this year. Um, and basically before the pitch clock, game time was three hours and two minutes. After the pitch clock, it went down to two hours and 41 minutes. Um, you guys should definitely go check out the full article. Um, but you should also check out JJ Cooper's article that he wrote kind of in response to this, just detailing how the benefits of the pitch clock have come into minor league baseball and then seemingly very quickly dissipated or, or gone back to previous times or even longer than previous game times in, in most cases, I think. Um, but basically, I just wanted to throw it out to you, Ben, and see what you thought of the pitch clock at the minor league level, if you think this is a real way to help the pace of the, of the game. I, I'm not necessarily too concerned over the pitch clock shortening game time, but I do think if it can create a better pace and kill some dead time, I'm all for it. And just in my personal experience watching minor league games with the pitch clock, and I think most people that I've heard who have experienced it kind of tell you that you, you forget about it very quickly and you don't really notice it. I'm kind of in that same boat. I forget about the pitch clock pretty quickly after I get to a minor league game and it doesn't really bother me too much. Um, but I'm just curious what you think about pitch clocks in general, if you think it's a, a real solution to just creating more pace in the game and maybe even some secondary benefits or maybe negatives, depending on how you feel about the game of increasing offense um, more hits, more, more runs, higher ERAs. Yeah. I think people generally who have been to a game where there is a pitch clock will come away saying, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even notice it was there beyond the novelty of seeing it at first, but after about an inning or two, it just fades into the background. You don't really notice it. And it, as long as it's enforced, it does speed up the or it does improve the flow of the game which is important I, I don't think the time of the game is so important like it, it's not about oh like let's get home 19 minutes earlier that that's not the point it's like you said you're just cleaning up dead time it's not that you're getting if, if the game goes three hours in 20 minutes instead of three hours you're not getting more baseball with three hour and 20 minute game you're just getting more dead time is if, if it's the same you know all, all, all else being equal so yeah at, at first i the when they first came up with the idea of pitch clocks i thought this is this is dumb i, I i'm not i'm not a fan of this when you go to the game and you see it in person it just fades into the background it's not a distraction you don't notice it except again as long as it's enforced the game does move along with with better flow to it, so I I would be I'd be in favor of seeing it at the big league level. Yeah, players are definitely not going to like that. No, no player, no especially no pitcher is going to want to speed up any more than he has to. Every every player involved is going to want to take as much time as they very well please, and they've done it their whole career, so that makes sense. But but as more players get into the major league game who have been exposed the pitch clock in whatever capacity whether that's as a pitcher or as a hitter 
I feel like they'll at least be more open to that. I would hope so. Um, and I honestly really don't care to have pitchers kind of rest up 30 seconds in between every pitch and throw full effort. Like it's fine with me if pitchers can't get every little bit of energy into every little pitch, because I, I think the game will wind up being more fun. And it's also, it's not an issue where any one player is being affected in a negative way. It's kind of an across the board, everyone's dealing with the same situation. So yeah, while pitcher ERAs might go up, while offense in general might go up, I mean, the, the best pitchers should still be the best pitchers in this situation. Um, and well, if that's, the, that's the yeah. thing is it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect most pitchers. It just takes the biggest slow pokes who are just dragging along and causing the game to just crawl to this just slower pace and just drag everything out. It takes them and says, all right, you guys got to pick it up a little bit here. It's it for the, for most pitchers, it's not going to have an impact. It's just those really slow guys, you know, those, guys who come in out of the bullpen for the most part. And like you said, want to throw a hundred percent max effort on every pitch and, and breathe and, and take all this time <laughs> in between pitches. Like, yeah. Oh, you gotta, you gotta pick it up, pick it up, buddy. No breathing here. Hold your breath, get on the mound and throw. <laughs> oh. one, one other thing that it's not directly related to this, but I've had this thought the last few games that I've been to, and I don't know if it's just where pro ball, you get more time, but I, I really don't understand why pitchers who are coming in from the bullpen get as many warm-up pitches as they do on the game mound. What is the point of the bullpen if you're going to come in and throw 12 pitches off the game mound? The whole point of the bullpen is so you can get warmed up before you come in. I think you should come in, get two pitches, get your feel on the game mound, and go. Why yeah, are we warming up twice? Well then, then, then Budweiser and uh, uh, <laughs> Roman and whoever else can't advertise in as much. In I guess can games. we have just pop up in game advertisements? I'd much prefer that than four minutes in between innings for ads and an ad break going to the bullpen. Like we we don't need this much time to get ready. That's what the bullpen is for. That's just, that's my hot take of the day. I'd be all for it. Yeah. Okay. Glad, glad we're of one mind for that one. Um, last kind of newsy item that I wanted to bring up and just see what you thought, uh, Ben, is this story from yahoo.com about Freddie Freeman. Um, it's by Hannah Kaiser and she basically wrote about Freddie Freeman's no games off mentality. I think most people are probably pretty aware of Freeman's reputation as a guy who will not take himself out of the lineup no matter what it seemingly like he basically has to be walking on one leg to take himself out of the lineup. He's uh, he's had very nitpicky injuries that he's played through. Um, but this story was interesting to me, not necessarily because it talked about Freeman's mentality and how he kind of goes about it, but really how all the other players react to Freeman's mentality with this. Austin Riley had a quote in the story where he said, Freddie, he's the captain of the team. And if you're not playing that day, you better be extremely hurt. It's just the way he's wired. He expects us to play every day and we're going to, says Riley. And I'd recommend you guys reading the full story. We'll link all these stories in the show notes for today's episode. So you guys can check out uh, all of these articles that we've talked about to kind of further contextualize it. But 
I think it's a good thing that Freeman himself has this mentality of wanting to play all the time, every day, play through very minor um, issues that he's dealing with because it is a long season and you probably want your players to have that mentality. But I feel like someone should be around who kind of stops this from like going too overboard because it does seem like, and, and I'll have to look into the numbers, but it does seem like there have been players with the Braves who've kind of worn down as the regular season has gone on. I know there are a number of Braves players that, that were near the top of the league in terms of just games played, Danby Swanson being one. Uh, Ozzy was a guy who's been ridden really hard in the past. Uh, Austin Riley is obviously doing the same thing this year. But what is your, your thinking on a player who has this sort of mentality? And how do you, what do you think is the best way to kind of police that and prevent a player from causing harm to himself or, or maybe even other teammates? I think it's, I didn't, I, so I didn't read the story itself. So I'll speak without full context here, but yeah, I, I, we I think don't it's even fine. have to talk about this, this situation specifically, what? just kind of the general mentality and, and how teams should embrace that or, or protect players from themselves. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fine that a player wants to play every day and, and takes pride in doing that. And if, if, you know, a player like Freddie Freeman, who's, you know, an MVP type mm -hmm. guy and, and, you know, consistent, what, three to five win type player every year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I want him, if he can play every day, I, I, I want him playing every day. Maybe you want to get him a little bit more rest down, down the stretch at, at times to make sure he's fully ready to go in, in October. Uh, but the alternative between having him play and, 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 and somebody else is going to be a pretty significant gap and, and a drop off there. But yeah, I mean, it, there's, you know, if you, it's fine to take day off, days off, it's good to take days off. You, you want to make sure guys are arrested and not playing, not playing, not just fatigued, but playing through, Injuries. I mean, like, yeah, like little minor stuff here and there. Okay. Sometimes you got to play through it, but you don't want to have a guy playing through something where he ends up getting really badly hurt and knocks him out of the lineup for six weeks or two or three months. Because I mean, ultimately like that, that's just worse for the team overall. So yeah, mm -hmm. as, as an organization, whether it's your, your manager or, or your manager in, in conjunction with your, front office needs to take a, a bigger picture view of, of the most important goals for the team, not just for the player to have the ability to say, yeah, I played 162 or 160 games this season as a, as a point of personal pride. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Freeman is a guy who has played 162 games in two seasons in 2014 and 2018 he played 158 in 2016 and 2019, 157 in 2011. This year, um, he's he's leading the league with 146 games played. Uh, assuming there's some other players that have that have also played uh, that many games. Um, but it's interesting with Freeman too because he doesn't seem like a player who is really affected by that in terms of fatigue. If you look at his month by month career splits, he's pretty consistent every single month. 
It ranges from an 854. I shouldn't say it ranges. May is his worst month, just looking at his career month by month splits at 854 OPS, Ben, just for you. And then outside (laughs) of that, the range is 893 to 908. And it's pretty clustered right in the middle of that for all of his other months. So there's no obvious statistical reason or, or any statistical evidence just looking at the surface here that shows that he wears down, but I could definitely see a player who just thrives on playing all the time and is very durable and really doesn't, isn't bothered by, by things, even if he's not at hundred percent, I feel like that could still rub off poorly for players who maybe aren't wired or geared the same way, who feel like they kind of have to live up to that same mentality. And with Freeman being the player that he is, and obviously the clubhouse leader, um, and really the face of the franchise for the Braves, I mean, players are going to follow his example. So it is interesting to think about. Like you said, I think it's good that players themselves want to get on the field every day, no matter what. I do think it's important that teams kind of hold them back from themselves at times and kind of look at the bigger picture because it's a long season. And for teams that are competing, and really for every team, you want to have your players healthy once you're at the finish line and playing your most important games, there's no point in burning out uh, to get to September. If you're not going to be able to play in October. Yeah. And, and every player is different. I mean, if, if mm-hmm. Freddie Freeman is able to play every day of the season and not drop off at all, then <laughs> yeah, go ahead and, and play every day. I don't have an issue with that, but not every player, like you said, is, is wired the same way. Yeah, so those are a few of the newsy items uh, that came up that I felt like were interesting to talk through. Um, we're going to go to a quick break here, and then we'll get into a bunch of listener questions. Uh, we have a bunch from last week that we saved, just knowing that this is going to be a little bit of a shorter podcast with some travel obligations and some other things we had to take care of. But thank you guys uh, who have stuck with us to this point. Um, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. Thank you guys for sticking with us. We're going to, like I said, jump into a few questions that you guys had, uh, make this a little bit of a mailbag heavy episode. Um, And as always, if you guys have any questions you want to throw to us, you can uh, on Twitter at future pro pod, you can at Carlos a Colazzo or at Ben Badler on Twitter. And then you can also follow Ben's Instagram at ben.badler before most episodes we will have a call for questions, Uh, but you can send them at, at any point. Our first one comes from AZ baseball fan on Twitter. Does the Dominican winter league draft draft order hold any significance in terms of prospect rankings, or is it more to do with the team's positional needs? I think it, it correlates somewhat right with prospect rankings, at least on the position player side, right? Like you see Orelvis Martinez or Marco Luciano, uh, Noel V. Marte, these guys are the first picks in in the draft. So basically every September, the Dominican League can draft players who have been, who have reached the full season level. So usually guys who were in low A or high A, um, or it could be higher too if, if they just haven't been drafted uh, previously by a team. So you see these young uh, players from the Dominican Republic get drafted there. Uh, so there is some correlation, but um, these teams are also, they 
they're not playing to have good prospects. They're playing to win. <laughs> so if, you know, look, there, there are times where you get a player like a Fernando Tatis Jr. who plays in the league as a prospect and helps lead your team to, to a championship. But at the same time, you know that those guys probably are not going to carry uh, or, or get a ton of playing time for you over, over the course of their uh, career. So um, it's not entirely about prospect rankings, but it obviously does have some correlation on the position player side on the pitching side, not quite as much just because teams, the teams in the league know that the major league clubs are probably not going to allow their pitching prospects to pitch in the league much for for the most part um so that's why you see the pitchers go way way later even if they're you know a, a top 100 pitching prospect in the game they might still just end up going in in the later rounds of the draft there yep thank you for that question we got a couple that are related to mark appel uh kayla on instagram asks will Forrest whitley end up being mark appel 2.0 and then we had a second question from Joffrey Tho on Instagram who asks, will Mark Appel make it back to the big leagues? So Mark Appel is on the mind uh, for, for a number of people, probably because of a, a Twitter thread he had that went viral where he kind of just talked about his experience in the game, why he needed to step away. Um, definitely an interesting kind of insight into what's going on in his head, how he's dealt with being labeled one of the biggest busts in MLB history, which I can't imagine is easy for anyone to deal with. And it seems like Mark has handled it as well as you could hope uh, mentally. Uh, Mark Appel this year has pitched in double and triple A. Uh, he's posted a combined 6.13 ERA. He's thrown 69 innings. Um, he's walked almost as many batters as he's struck out. Um, but this is his first time pitching an affiliated ball since 2017 um, when he was in rookie ball in triple A. Uh, but yeah, Ben, I'll just start to you. I mean, thoughts on either of these? Will Mark Appel make it back to the big leagues? And what do you think of the comparison of Forrest Whitley and Mark Appel? Uh, well, I guess, well, you know, will Mark Appel make it to the big leagues? <laughs> um, would would be the better question, but uh, it, it's hard to say. I mean, he was out of the game for two years, so, mm. or actually longer than that. Um, yeah, counting the COVID year makes it a little tricky. So, so there's that, you know, don't really see much right now from him to indicate that he's going to have, uh, you know, any type of sustained career at the big league level. But if there's some point where he's throwing decently enough for a club that's not in contention, I could see a scenario where he gets called up and they just promote him to the big leagues to, you know, just say, Hey, we, you know, we, we respect the work that, that you've done and we just want to give you that, that shot in the big leagues. So that's a scenario where, where I could see happening. Um, but right now uh, it's not looking like there's going to be a lot of um, there, there's not a lot to see either the, in the stuff or performance right now to suggest um you know, any type of sustained big league role going forward. And then with the Forrest Whitley comparison to Mark Appel, I guess it's kind of a tough one, but 
two pitching prospects that at their peak were were very hyped. I think at one point we had Forrest Whitley as the the top pitching prospect in baseball. Is that accurate? And now he's so. and now he's uh, nowhere close to that. Um, injured right now, hasn't pitched since 2019. I mean, where where does Forrest Whitley stand in in terms of pros? Maybe not even prospect status, but just what where is Forrest Whitley in kind of the conversation of failed pitching prospects? I mean, he is still only 23 at this point. I think he just turned 24 a few days ago. So it's still too early for me to write him off entirely, but I feel like people probably, there are probably some people who've already done so. Where do you stand with Forrest Whitley at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Very different path than Mark Appel. Like you said, he just turned 24. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not optimistic. I, I think, but it's, again, it's hard to say because who knows? I mean, only, only really the Astros saw him pitch in 2020 at the alternate site and then sounded like he got shut down uh, you know coming back from surgery i don't know man it's <laughs> i'm i'm not i'm not too optimistic about it just because look like the last time the last time he was really really good um was what i mean it wasn't it wasn't even 2000 19 it yeah, i've it got his like, bref page up right now i mean he, it was like 2017 mm-hmm. right was was the last time 2017 was the last time he i mean really the only season he's thrown extended innings i guess he did throw almost 60 innings in, in 2019 but in 2017 he pitched in um the midwest league the carolina league and then he also pitched in the texas league so he got up to double a and across all three he posted a two point eight, three ERA over 92.1 innings. Um, and he struck out 13.9 while walking 3.3 per nine. So pretty good numbers across the board. I mean, his triple A numbers were even better than his, his a ball numbers. So that's probably the last year you point to, I mean, that that's, I would imagine that's when his kind of prospect hype was at its peak. I'm just pulling up his baseball America player page right now to see where he ranked the highest for us or what year that was, I would guess it was after the 2017 season. Yeah. So, I mean, after that, I mean, it's I mean, really hard ranked, to go off. Go ahead. And 20 in our, for our top 100 rankings, he ranked as the number 31 prospect in 2015. So I guess that's probably the last time it would be. Yeah. I mean, he, I, and I think we just overranked him for a few years. Mm-hmm after that i mean really the the last time he pitched like a guy who we were like oh wow this really looks like a front of the rotation maybe number one type starter was was 2017 um so we're talking 18 19 20 20 i mean what four full seasons going into 2022 obviously 2020 was was a difficult you know year to to gauge but um I don't know. I'm not, I'm not optimistic at this point. I, th- I think he still could get, you know, to the big leagues. I'm not writing him off, but. Um, and really no. quickly, the, the yeah. 2015 was Mark Appel. I was like that, the number doesn't make sense for Forrest Whitley. He was ranked five in 2019. So that would have been prior to the 2019 season. He was the number five prospect in baseball for us. So apologies for that. That makes more sense of the timeline. 
so yeah i like again like i, I think it's you're you're going off of much deeper history to still be on uh uh you know really optimistic about mm-hmm. him at, at this point that leads into another question that we had that is pretty or at least related to this i think there was a question about uh famous prospects and here we go uh helmet cormalis on twitter asks pop-up prospect versus pedigree what's your stance example Samad Taylor versus Austin Hendrick, the first unher- unheralded success, the latter a first round disappointment. So I think this just this question of pop-up prospect versus pedigree and how we handle those players, I think at least my stance is it, it shouldn't really matter. Um, you have to go on the information you have now, currently. How do you evaluate the player now? But I do think it is it is tough to get rid of the history you have on players entirely when it, when it's necessary, when the player is no longer the player that you were kind of projecting three years ago, if enough changes have happened that you need to discount that history. And I think it is, it can be difficult to come off of a player as aggressively as maybe you need to, when you have a long history of a player who's ranked very highly and has that pedigree. I think of a guy like Mackenzie Gore, like how to handle that. He was a, one of the top prospects in his draft class. He was a top pitcher in baseball for us um, just a few years ago. I mean, entering the season, he was a top 10 prospect Um, and how to balance adjusting that when to really, I don't want to say give up on the pedigree, but when does the new information outweigh kind of the pedigree that he had built up previously? I feel like, balancing that is extremely tricky um and so some guys who don't have that pedigree can certainly go under the radar a little bit longer kind of finding that balance and and figuring out how to avoid our biases here or to be like kind of drive through them and figure out the truth with these prospects is is very difficult but what are your thoughts on that ben yeah i guess it depends what you mean by pedigree versus history like if we oh well this guy was a first round pick and 2019 well i I don't i don't really care about Mm -hmm. that (laughs) at all but if we're talking about a larger sample size of what he has done over over the last few years yeah i mean you you weigh that you weigh the most recent information probably or certainly the the heaviest but it it, you know it depends on on sample sizes it depends on on different factors so it's it's you know it's a sliding scale for for players but i mean austin hendrick uh he like what i i i tend to wait what he's both both what i mean what what he's done in pro ball and as an amateur i mean as in both instances you can see a ton of bat speed and and huge raw power but even again using that not so much pedigree, but using the history of seeing him in high school and thinking at the time, yeah, he has a ton of bat speed and a ton of raw power, but um, he also takes some bad swings sometimes, some pitch recognition issues. I, I don't know if that's going to lead to some swing and miss or, or a lot of swing and miss was, was my concern on him coming out of high school, especially yeah. as an older high school guy. And that's come, you know, come into play and yeah this year he's striking out in a ball he's striking out at a 37 i guess 
this point he struck out at a 37.6% rate. He did walk close to 20% of the time and had a 380 on base percentage, despite a 211 average. Um, so there is some on base skill there in addition to the bat speed and raw power that you're talking about. But yeah, definitely some strikeout questions that he had as an amateur that have only lingered and maybe expanded in pro ball. Yeah. So you don't want to just th- throw out history, but as far as if, if pedigree is something as far as either where a guy was drafted a couple of years ago or, or how much his signing bonus was either in the draft or, or especially internationally, that it, it just doesn't, it doesn't have all that much meaning to me. All right. Rob Dale on Twitter says for fun, following up on your triple a scout discussions in a previous podcast, what will scouting overall look like in 10 years? Will more high schools be live streaming stat casts? Will AI do most of the draft analysis? Ben, I'll just throw it to you. What's scouting going to look like in 10 years? Pull out your crystal ball. Let us know what's going to happen. Should all the scouts uh, jump into a different field or start prepping their resumes? Are the robots going to take over? I think you'll see a lot more video in in places that don't aren't currently set up for them now. Um I think you'll see more, some more centralized video internationally at big events, especially as MLB tries to push toward an international draft. So it's not like, oh, hey, this team scouted this guy aggressively early on and reached a deal with him at 14 years old. That's not going to happen uh, during an international draft. So you're going to have probably more video, more centralized video that teams are going to have at uh, MLB showcases and things like that. But um, I think it'll still be like, there's no reason to um, like, (laughs) I I don't know, maybe, maybe scouting, you know, evolves or in, in some capacity where, um, you know, teams have fewer scouts on the ground in some ways, but, um, I don't, I, I think teams are still going to want, um, there's certainly, I would still want to have a lot of scouts <laughs> on the ground, identifying these players and, and especially seeing players where, and, and getting looks that, you know, these centralized video looks are not, um, going to be possible. Yeah, I'm curious how scouting departments will just shake out in terms of how various scouts will be siloed from other areas. Like right now, it's pretty normal to have pro scouts, have amateur scouts, have international scouts. Uh, I feel like there are some teams that are already moving in a direction where you kind of just have scouts and everyone has a number of different assignments, um, depending on the needs throughout the year, where you will be scouting an amateur player, you'll be scouting an international player, you have pro coverage. Um, and like you said, as video becomes more accessible to all these areas, I feel like it, it is only more likely that you can have all your scouts kind of looking at a number of different levels um, and player ages that will probably help the scouts just better contextualize that. And I think that's a that's a pretty common goal for scouting departments as it is for, for all their scouts to have good context for what are we looking for at the major league level. Um, and kind of just up and down the spectrum of 
prospects. Like you should be seeing these 16, 17 year olds, I guess even 15 year olds on the international side. You should be seeing these high school players, these college players and how to um, kind of fit them all in. And I'm curious to see how scouting departments will kind of develop over the next few years in terms of where teams are going to put their resources and how an international draft might shake up how teams are going to have to just run their staffs out there. That's kind of what I'm curious about. I think, I mean, even in the last five years, the amount of data and the the specific data points you can use with high school players um, with all the, the track man, the blast motion, just various ways you can measure bat speed, all of the, the data points and the, the technology that is really at all of these big travel ball and showcase settings for high schools. Like I feel like that's only going to continue happening. Um, so there will be a lot of data points for these players and I think there are probably going to be better options for players to personally use for perhaps like a high school season where maybe you don't have access to a track man system at your high school field, but you're going to have better tools to get some more personal data points to college recruiters and to scouts. Um, I really don't think we're going to a world where AI does most of the draft analysis. At least I hope that's not the case. I don't, I don't think that would happen. I just feel like more of these tools that will help you get a more accurate picture of these players will just be more prevalent for everyone and probably at a younger age for all these players. Um, so I don't think anything too extreme will change, but that could just be me failing to uh, imagine things at a, at a wild level. Anything to add on that, Ben? Yeah, I, I think the, yeah, the more... I, I think what I'd, I'd be curious, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I would be curious to see what during like the spring high school season, what, what might be different in 10 years compared to now, because like you talked about, if you're, you know, if you're playing a tournament at Lake point in Georgia or at the USA facility in Cary, North Carolina during the summer, there's a lot of, both video and, you know, different track man data that, that comes out of that, but you don't really have the same, that same thing happening in the spring. Uh, you know, you have like the NHSI, which I hope comes back, <laughs> um, next year. And yeah. And even for those events, it's really just a, a small minority of players. If you're talking about the, the, I guess if you're talking about like the draft, it's one thing. If you're talking about players overall, just the entire college landscape, that's a, it's an extremely larger group of players. And, and maybe it's a case where no, every high school field isn't going to have all of this stuff, but maybe um, different like training facilities, batting cages, driveline equivalents, pitching labs, maybe that is what becomes more common and kind of everyday high school players who just are trying to get to the next level and play college ball Maybe it's easier for them to hop in a gym somewhere throughout their high school season and get in front of a track man or a rap soda machine and kind of continually update your numbers that way. I don't know. I feel like the technology is becoming more accessible to what extent it becomes like omnipresent in the landscape is, is what I'll be curious to see over the next 10 years. Cause 10 years doesn't seem like a long time, but a lot's going to change in, in that amount of time. So 
I guess I'll end it with, I don't really know, but I'm excited to see what happens because I'm sure it'll be interesting regardless. Um, K Joe Hudson on Twitter asks, should MLB rethink competitive balance picks in the next CBA? There are many teams that closely resemble each other financially that either get an extra early pick and international free agent money each year and those that don't. Not every team that doesn't get an extra pick is the Yankees or Dodgers. Uh, I'll just throw it to you first, Ben. What are your thoughts on, on the competitive balance picks and Get should they happen? Get rid of them. Uh, they're competitive imbalance picks. They just imbalance the draft, like like you said. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, don't, I don't see the value in give, like, imbalancing the draft to tilt it in favor of, of some clubs. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Uh, I think the best thing about the competitive balance picks is that you can trade them. So hopefully we can get rid of the picks, keep the trading of picks and make that just commonplace. And I think that'd be a more fun system. So I tend to agree. I think there's a lot of language that tries to make it seem like these picks are about competitive balance and parity when really it's just poor owners crying poor probably and not wanting the rich teams that like to spend and want to spend, get away with it more than anything. I'm with you. Uh, Ed Casey on Twitter says, I was wondering which players you and Ben would most like to see get Arizona Fall League assignments. Do you have any specific players that come to mind for that, Ben? I'd like to see... I'd like to see Rowanzi Contreras come back with the with the Pirates. He, mm-hmm. man, he was looking so good for those first two months of the season. Mm-hmm. Got hurt. Came back in September... So I, I don't know exactly, like, I don't know if he'll play. Do they want to ramp him up and then, like, shut him down and then, like, bring him back up again? Or maybe he just keeps pitching. But guys like that who miss some time during the season, I think the Arizona Folly is, is a good opportunity for those guys to get more playing time. And then players who were just drafted um, this year, I'd like to see some. I'd like to see some aggressive assignments for for some of those guys if if we can get them to you know challenge challenge those guys in in the Arizona Folly. Like hey, like Colton Cowser, I think he's a good good player, mm. but in Pro Bowl so far, <laughs> all all you know we haven't seen him really challenged. Like the Orioles haven't pushed him uh, super hard. You know not understandably most of those guys in college will go to you know previously would have gone to the new york penn league or something so uh but he's only in, in low a delmarva um okay they don't have an issue with their assignment but i would like to see all right let's see how he does given a you know a challenging assignment to to the fall where again the, you know the, maybe the pitching is not going to be great for the most part but I, I don't know maybe i'm wrong maybe it'll actually be better more interesting this year um, with teams maybe wanting to send some more, more guys there after, after we lost the 2020 season, but I'm not sure how that actually is, is going to look, but um, yeah. those would be the types of guys I'd be excited to see out there. Yeah. Gabriel Moreno is probably the first guy that came to mind for me. I don't know mm-hmm. what his like situation is with, with his injury, but he did go on a rehab assignment in September, played two games in the FCL. I mean, he was a guy who the, the reviews we were getting from scouts when he was playing early in the season, was just insane. Um, so I'd like to see him 
Um, yeah, I think you're right. Just the, the guys that miss time. I mean, even Julio Rodriguez, who, or yeah, Julio Rodriguez, who missed some time, um, not necessarily because of injury, but just because of some Olympic stuff he was doing. Uh, I always want to see more of Julio. So maybe that's a cop-out answer, but all the college bats, I think that's a good call. All the recent college drafty bats, maybe even some of the advanced high school players who are able, like what if Marcelo Meyer was there? That'd be awesome. I don't know what the history is of high school players in the league their first year, but for the guys who performed and you think are really advanced, I would like to see them kind of in the mix with all of these top prospects in baseball. Um, on yeah. the field. That would be a lot of fun. I think, I think probably more likely would be guys, some 2020 high school picks mm-hmm. like a Tyler Soderstrom or yeah. Zach that's a great Bean Soderstrom or, is a great call. Yeah. Robert Hassel, mm-hmm. those guys who've been at the a ball level, but let's, all right, let's push them to the fall league. Yeah. And, and again, also Soderstrom has been, you know, injured for, for a lot of the season, but, um, you know, to have some of those guys really get pushed and see how they do against some some upper level arms mm-hmm. would be good. Yeah, like theoretically, I would love to see Jack Leiter too, but I also understand how it probably doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> to get him heated up and throwing after the workload he just saw at Vanderbilt after I, going from 15 to like 100. So I think that would be like a probably not not the best idea, but selfishly, I would I would love to see it. Yeah, probably not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Roger Whitehead on Twitter said, I hear about pitching labs and pitch design, but what is the cut? What is the cutting edge of hitting development look like? Is there any consensus emerging on how to apply science and technology uh, in regards to hitting? So that's a question from Roger. Do you have any uh, insight into that, Ben? What, what the cutting edge of hitting? What is it? Yeah, like? basically he's, he's heard about pitching labs and pitch design driveline stuff but what is the cutting edge of hitting development look like? Is there any consensus uh, emerging on how to apply science and technology in regards to hitting development? Yeah, I, I think you touched on some of it with just the accessibility teams have now to um, measure each swing that a hitter takes. Cer- certainly, you know, in a practice setting with different things like, like the blast sensors or, or, or what's the, the, like the K vest, the sleeves that, that, you know, players can wear um, or, or just, you know, things like measuring exit velocity or, uh, or angle off the bat, that type of stuff. And, and also I, I think just video too. Like I actually think like the smartphone is, underrated um just as far as uh quick access to video to give players instant feedback on on what they just did i mean there's you know teams will have in their uh i don't know if they call them hitting labs it's you know in their in their batting cages right it's a fancy marketing thing that these teams call them labs now um They'll, they'll have it, some of them will have it set up where you can take a swing in, in the cage, get all of your data that that swing produced right away. And then on maybe like a three or four second delay, it'll show you that swing again that you just took from the side. So you get instant feedback because sometimes in your head, what you think you're doing 
is much different than what you're actually doing. <laughs> and when you see that video play out in real time or, or near real time, you have uh, a faster feedback loop to be able to make corrections and, and make adjustments based on, on what you just did and, and what you just saw. I don't know if this is necessarily cutting edge because I feel like a few years ago I wrote a story about it um, with just VR technology and how that could be useful to train hitters. I don't think the technology is to the point where it has seen the returns that maybe people wanted, but I do think it's interesting to think about how VR could help you train as a hitter if the technology gets to the point where it's hard to tell the difference between what you're seeing um, like in a v VR headset or some sort of VR uh, simulation versus like the real thing, like the ability to get live reps that way and just train yourself to see what that velocity looks like. And even if you're talking about like a more granular, um, like preparation for a specific pitcher, because the technology is there to at least see how the ball looks coming out of a pitcher's hand, how, how a specific pitcher's pitch mix looks in a VR setting. If the technology that there can take a step forward to where basically your whole team before Max Scherzer is pitching to you, you can get a hundred reps of seeing Max Scherzer. I don't know how you, you can't replicate that in a practice environment. Even if you had a guy who looked just like Scherzer had the same mechanics it's not like he's got an infinite amount of throws in him. You're not just going to have someone out there throwing 95 for batting practice. That, that doesn't seem realistic, but, but VR as a way to just get reps of, of real, the real time with pitching and just vision training in general, I feel like any kind of vision training is, is an area that teams are trying to unlock right now. I don't know like what are the limits of how you can improve your vision outside of like contacts and like LASIK and glasses. Like once you, basically you've put your eyes in the best situation as far as like just getting the right contacts, if you need them, I don't know how much further you can go to train your vision, but I do know that's an area that teams are trying to figure out and see if there is something that can be done to improve that. Because obviously that's one of the most important things about hitting that, to this point is, is kind of like a, you either have it or you don't. Um, and if that's, if that's able to change in the future, I imagine that would be pretty, pretty groundbreaking, but I don't have any specifics on like what the status of that is at this point. Yeah. I think teams, teams have definitely been trying to measure it for, for a long time. And, and I think that's important and, and trying to figure out ways to improve, um, prove it like you were talking about with, probably mixed or not <laughs> great results but the vr i think mm -hmm. it, it, like you said if the technology gets to the point and it probably is not there yet but it can rapidly improve <laughs> in in the next i don't know five years ten years maybe or maybe longer than that where we know about the times through the order penalty well, well like you said what if you can go out and face Max Scherzer, or maybe Max Scherzer is not a great example because he'll still probably strike everybody out. <laughs> maybe but, he won't know. then. Maybe he won't. Maybe that's the edge. But, but you know, probably for, you know, for a lot of pitchers, all right, we can go and, like you said, take a whole bunch of reps against uh, 
a VR version of, I don't know, <laughs> somebody who's not Max Scherzer, but um, you know, a, you know, a, Corbin against, Burns. Yeah. Against the, or against the <laughs> team starting pitcher yeah. for the night. And some of the times to the order penalty, I'm sure is fatigue from the pitcher's standpoint, but whatever percentage of it is the batters gaining familiarity with that pitcher on that night, then perhaps at least there's a hypothesis there that it could improve, um, you know, the outcomes earlier in the game for the hitter. Uh, Cream City Prospects on Twitter says the Brewers have had a few hitting prospects break out this year, and arguably none of them have performed better than Joey Weimer. He's displayed power, speed, and arm strength, albeit over a brief sample. How much has Weimer's performance in 2021 improved his prospect stock? I'll throw it to you first, Ben, but Weimer is fascinating. Yeah, he's really, he, I mean, he's six foot five, big, strong, athletic, like you said, runs well, power, uh, gigantic arm from the outfield too. And also at least coming out of college from Cincinnati last year, just had like a big wild ass swing, <laughs> just lots of moving parts going every different direction. And this year he came out and at least like early on was not great. <laughs> uh, but as the season's gone on, especially come, you know, August, September, He's been, he's been really good. He's, he's simplified his swing. Uh, there's still moving parts to it, but it's, it's moving with, with a lot less unnecessary movement. That's it's better, better flow, better sequence to his swing. And you're seeing much better results uh, early on in the year. I, I, I was not too encouraged, but yeah, definitely what, what he's done in, in the second half of the season, and especially after getting promoted to, you know, to high A mm -hmm. has been been really exciting to uh, to see from him. Yeah, we had a Weimer as the number 136 prospect in the 2020 draft, and scouts really liked just the raw tool set, the raw power, the arm strength, the running ability. Um, but there were questions about the just the noise in the swing that you're talking about. There were a lot of moving parts. Uh, he had probably a lower average than scouts wanted to see at three years with Cincinnati. He hit just 264, had 12 home runs, had 35 stolen bases. And then, like you are saying, starting off slow and then figured it out, simplified the swing. Um, it seems like getting rid of that leg kick and introducing more of a toe tap has, has helped him get to the barrel a little bit more consistently. But you look at the splits just month to month. Went from a 640 OPS in May. And see, now you have me saying OPS. <laughs> it's really peer pressure. It's all it is. 834. Um, and 834 actually in both June and July. And then August and September really exploded. Um, 1300 and 1100 OPS in those months with 18 of his home runs on the season. So if, if that mechanical cue is, is the reason for his success, which I imagine it has to do a significant amount with you have to be really excited because the tool set has always been loud and him being able to tap into it more consistently makes him a very exciting prospect. Um, and doing it at a higher classification is exciting as well. 
still 22 years old in high a probably still going to be a little bit skeptical of that hit tool until he can kind of perform against some uh, more advanced pitching, but you have to really like what you've seen from him. And Weimer was one of the 30 prospects that I think Josh put together on the site today of prospects who improved their stock. So for the organization, he was the guy that most jumped out to Josh. Um, so yeah, he's a really good one. Uh, our next question is from Alex Pollock on Twitter. Beyond Adley and Grayson Rodriguez, what are your thoughts on the next tier of top Orioles talent? Um, and they have slowly become one of the better systems in the game. Ben, what are your thoughts on the talent in the Orioles system outside of those top two guys? I mean, yeah, those guys are obviously carrying it. Adley being number one overall and yeah, the number one hitting prospect and the number one pitching prospect is a pretty good start. Yeah. But a lot of good, still a lot of good feedback this year on Gunnar Henderson. Uh, we talked about Colton Cowser, DL hall. I mean, some things you love, some things are frightening between health and strike throwing, but then you see a guy like, like Shane Boz just tonight, like today, it's like, geez, you, you can see guys make pretty fast drives sometimes with, with the strike throwing ability and, and sometimes in surprising ways. So, um, a lot of upside, but, but still a lot of, um, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if I call them red flags or just points of concern with him, but yeah, I mean, Jordan Westberg, I really like the Connor Norby pick for the Orioles in, in the draft this year, um, Kobe Mayo, uh, guy who had, I mean, thought maybe they'd be a little more aggressive with his assignment, but they kept him in in the complex league in Florida early on, hit really well there. They promoted him, keeps hitting really well, so that's a, a really good sign for for him to be, um, you know, I, I would say certainly an, an arrow up guy right now in that system. So. Obviously, yeah, Adley and, and Grayson Rodriguez are kind of the anchors of that system, but it's not just because of those two guys that we have them as, you know, one of the, the top, top farm systems in the game. Yeah, and I think the Mayo performance has to be encouraging if you're an Orioles fan because, I mean, he was a big reason, or at least he was, uh, I guess, where the Orioles moved a lot of their pool money in the 2020 draft. I mean, they took Heston Kersad at number two. It was not a consensus pick there on talent but the Orioles have been a team very willing to kind of search for deals where where can they save money with their first pick and then spread that money around Mayo got 1.75 million in the fourth round and then they also gave 1.5 million to Carter Baumler um, and so I mean Mayo's production and his performance is going to be key in how we look back and see that draft class and like Ben was saying I mean hitting 319, 426, 555, nine home runs, 14 doubles um, is, is pretty impressive as a 19-year-old. Connor Norby is a bat that I feel like everyone on our staff wound up really liking after his season with East Carolina. He had a solid pro debut, good on base skills. Um, and then Kowser has been one of the better performing 2021 draftees on top of being just one of the better pure hitters in the class overall. And was another guy who um, maybe a little bit higher than the industry had him at the time in terms of where he went and the pool money that he got for the Orioles, but has looked pretty good so far. So 
I do like some of the bats. Um, yeah, and I think there's some interesting players here, but it really does start with Adley Rutschman and Grayson Rodriguez, and that, that carries a lot of the weight in, in where we kind of view their org overall. So you can't overlook them entirely, but I guess for some conversation on players beyond the top two, um, there's some interesting, interesting bats for me. Uh, another question from Aaron Strike on Twitter. Cubs prospect Christian Hernandez is ending this season on a tear. What are you looking for him? What are you looking for from a developmental perspective for him this winter and into 2022? Um, ben, you know this guy better than anyone. So what are your thoughts? One, just continue to get stronger. I mean, he has a really lean, like projectable frame with, with a lot of strength projection to it. He already has a lot of bat speed and a lot of raw power, and that's just going to go up as he gets bigger and stronger as you know, you still want him to retain his athleticism so that ideally he can continue to play shortstop because I think he has a chance to, to stick at that position. Uh, But I think just getting stronger will help him and, and also learning, which I think you're seeing him do more in as, as that season has, you know, as, as that season went on for him, in the Dominican summer league is he, he has big raw power, but I, I remember even seeing him as an amateur player and he would put on a huge show in batting practice with his raw power. And then in games, every time I saw him, and I think a lot of other people too, he, he always hit well in the games. It's not like he was just a big power guy in BP and then swung and missed a lot he hit well on the game, but it, it was more of a, I don't know, like a singles approach, it, it, but it was more singles and and not as much damage in games. Like I think he was trying to just put the ball in play in games rather than look to drive the ball with impact sometimes. Um, but that's, that's all right. I mean, the, the bat to ball skill is there. He clearly has raw power and, and that power was showing up more in games and, um, you know, after, after that, you know, once they got into August and, and September, so, um, just more, yeah, just more maturity and, and more knowledge as a hitter, which I mean, kind of sounds obvious to say, I guess, for a 17 year old kid, but, um, I think he, he is a smart hitter, but just getting a better understanding of, you know, knowing which pitches to turn on and, and try to, drive with with that a swing for for impact uh, i think you'll start to see that you know those those power numbers go up uh even more because uh, i think he is a, a really talented hitter who has a lot of power and is still just learning how to fully tap into it uh in games too no doubt and then our final question for this episode comes from ryan stevens on instagram he asks who do you think is the best pure hitter in the 2023 class and again ben um, this one's going to be directed at you. You've been diving into the 2023 class. We talked about a few of the top position players in the class on our last episode. So I'm guessing maybe one of those is going to be your answer here. But uh, at this point, who's the best hitter in the 2023 class? And I, I guess I, th- I kind of assumed this was high school, but I guess if we're doing overall 2023, I'll chime in for uh, an obvious choice on the college side. All right. Well, I'll give you the high school ones. I, I probably would go with Max Clark still. Mm-hmm. He is number one overall 
part of that is because he's also, you know, a great athlete who can play center field and play center field really well. Mm-hmm. But just as far as pure hit, bats a ball, uh, use the whole field, he, he rarely swings and misses. He, he has a great understanding of the strike zone. It's really uncommon to see him expand the strike zone. And he just sprays line drives all around the, all around the field, line to line, uh, and can drive the ball. Uh, I think he's another guy where we're just learning how to, you know, learning which situations to really turn on the ball and drive it with impact because he does have power too. So mm-hmm. I would probably go with him, although Walker Jenkins, outfielder from, from North Carolina, committed to North Carolina also, uh, really, really polished advanced hitter, very physical guy, 6'3", strong, drives the ball with with impact to all fields. Another guy who really knows the strike zone well and doesn't swing and miss all that much. Um, and then a couple other guys I would throw in there probably would be Kevin McGonigal, a shortstop from Pennsylvania, committed to Auburn just as far as performance. This, this guy rakes like everywhere, man. Yeah, although actually at, at area code underclass, the performance was just okay if you just looked at the box score, but I think every time he just barreled the ball in, in almost every at bat. So uh, really short swing, good plate coverage, uh, covers you know inner third, outer third, uh, short arms, which is good for a nice compact swing for him. Uh, and then one other name I'd, I'd mention is kind of a. I don't know if I'd call him a sleeper because we have him pretty high up, but mm-hmm. um, Stephen Milam, shortstop, committed to LSU. Uh, not a very big guy. He's listed at five foot eight, which is probably on the generous side, <laughs> I think. But man, he can really hit. He's got a small strike zone, does not expand it much, and switch hitter with a ton of contact in games he's just probably one of the smartest highest baseball iq guys in the class both at the plate uh and and in the field and and just in every facet of the game but i think he's he's not that big but man he can he can really hit he knows the strike zone i think he's going to be a uh or a chance to be a a really high Mm -hmm. high on base guy i mean some some similarities to you know we talked about Brian Rocchio, some Indians shortstop, not that big of a guy either. A switch hitting shortstop who's in our top 100 and keeps hitting all the way up through Double A now. So um, I, those are those are some of the guys who I think are some of the best pure hitters in in that 23 class from high school. Who are some of the college guys that jump for you? Yeah, I mean the obvious guy that I think of in the 2023 class on the college side is Dylan Cruz. Uh, I think we've talked about him on the podcast before, maybe just briefly, but he was obviously a very highly touted high school player um, in the 2020 draft who opted out, got to LSU, and then was one of the most impressive freshmen in college baseball this past spring. Um, just the hitting ability overall, the on-base ability, and the impact potential. Um, the LSU analytics department does a really good job just putting out um, some exit velo numbers for their hitters and, and the impact that Cruz routinely seemed to drive the ball was really impressive, impressive, excuse me, as a freshman in the SEC. Um, his weighted on base average is one of the best marks of any freshman in the country. 
Uh, he hit 362, 453, 663. So just hitting ability, on-base ability, power, kind of all of the above, he, he has it. I really have loved his swing going back to high school. There were some swing and miss issues that he showed at times, some pitch selection issues at times in high school. Um, but you wouldn't have, have thought that at all if you watched him this spring. Uh, so I think he's really figured everything out. A couple other hitters who are interesting in this class are Jacob Gonzalez at Mississippi and then Enrique Bradfield at Vanderbilt. Um, Gonzalez was a guy who led his team in most major offensive categories. Um, last spring, hit 355, 443, 561, walked more often than he struck out. So it does a really good job controlling the zone, hit for impact as well, 12 home runs uh, while playing on the infield as a left-handed hitter. So there's a lot to like with him. And then Enrique Bradfield might be one of the more exciting just players overall in the class. I think if you're just talking about offensive potential in the box, there are probably players or there are certainly players who are going to bring more power to the table. But in terms of just bat to ball skills, um, the ability to control the zone and get on base, Bradfield has just a, a very unique old school skill set. Um, he's a guy who has top of the scale speed that plays on the bases and in center field where he just makes fantastic defensive plays. And I know I'm kind of getting off of the question, which is best pure hitter. But if you expand the question to the best bat to ball skills, I would think in the college class, Bradfield is a guy who's up there. He, he just finds a way to put the bat on the ball, use his speed to get on base, um, doesn't strike out a ton. Um, and just kind of creates chaos for, for defenses. So he's, he's definitely a player I would try to watch as much as you can. He's one of those guys who, who's just always doing something on the baseball field that's impactful. Um, so with that little, uh, little ramble and getting off the, the point of the question, I think that wraps it up for us on today's episode. Uh, we've gone through a number of your questions, and we appreciate you guys sending them in. Hopefully we gave you adequate uh, answers. I know Ben did. I'm trying, just trying to keep up with him at this point. Um, but thank you guys again. You can send them to us on Twitter. You can send them at Ben's Instagram. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for today. Ben, do you have anything that you want to plug that listeners need to uh, keep up with in the next few days and, and weeks? Plugs? Yeah, we got uh, yeah, our, our league top prospect rankings are kind of in the works right now is so hopefully it'll be rolling those out at some point in the uh in the near future for you guys no exact date set yet on the on when but uh i know we've all been making a lot of calls for uh for those lists coming up yeah i don't have much to plug either just thank you guys for listening to the podcast um if you are new and you missed early on when we really plugged um to review and rate the podcast if you haven't done that and feel um like you want to we would love to have you rate and review the podcast it does still help us out um we're pretty well established in the podcast space at least in terms of people know who the podcast is but we'd always like more people to listen to the podcast and hear it um and that is a way that you guys can help us out with all the various algorithms in the podcasting world so if you do feel the need to rate and review we really appreciate that um but I think that's all I have for you. Uh, I guess just keep in touch. And until next time, for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.